I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. When it comes to being a mother of a daughter, it's show, don't tell. You can tell a man who's going to succeed in a man's world, and he'll believe you because it's a man's world, and he's going to step into it and succeed as long as you pave the way. But you have to show a daughter that you can succeed. And my mother showed me the importance of the work ethic and the importance of education and the sacrifices she made for me, um, I will forever be grateful for. And I keep trying to pay it back to her in every way I can every day of my life. Danielle DiMartino Booth is founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence, a research and consultancy agency. She has enjoyed a diverse career having worked on Wall Street, being a journalist, working at the Federal Reserve, and now heading her own company. A bold and brilliant market analyst who is unafraid to speak the truth, Danielle wrote the book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. She talks about the environment at the Fed and outlines the reasons and the missteps surrounding the financial crisis which began in 2007. Her mother has had a tremendous influence on her success, who she credits in the book. Danielle cites experiences in which women were sabotaging her success and warns that we must know who they are. What a delightful podcast interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Today, my guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Welcome to Leading She, Danielle. It's great, great, great to be here. I'm excited. I'm getting chills already. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to take a moment and introduce you and uh, go over your background. Danielle DiMartino Booth is founder and CEO of Quill Intelligence, a research and consultancy agency. A global thought leader on monetary policy, economics, and finance, Danielle founded this boutique research firm in 2018. The company synthesizes and analyzes vast amounts of data and offers predictive market intelligence to institutional investors. Quill Intelligence offers insights into the thought process and data-gathering techniques of the Federal Reserve, which are not readily available to the public. Prior to Quill, Danielle spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as advisor to President Richard Fisher throughout the financial crisis. She began her career in New York on Wall Street at Credit Suisse and DLJ, which was Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette, where she worked in the fixed income area, public equity, and private equity markets. She is the author of a book, a number one bestseller, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle has a column on Bloomberg View, is a business speaker and a commentator frequently featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, among others. Danielle earned her BBA as a college business scholar at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She holds an MBA in finance and international business from the University of Texas at Austin and an MS in journalism from Columbia University. So welcome again, Danielle. I, did I really do all that? Yes, you did. I was, I'm witness to it. It's a pretty incredible career. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tired yet, so let's keep going. <laughs> I still have energy, too, after 42 years. So I read the book. Uh, I've, I've watched a number of your talks online, uh, YouTube, and I just want to make an observation. Um, you have a poise about you, uh, just this rock-solid confidence that, I've seen in a lot of women in this podcast, but you are really a no BS kind of person, right? Aren't you? Uh, you know, when, when you're shackled by compliance, uh, whether it be inside of a sell side firm or even worse inside of the Fed, when you couldn't breathe a word, freedom is very liberating. And I, I, I don't take it for granted. And right. so I, I don't feel any reason to hold back any punches. Right. And you talk, about yeah and that's that's wonderful it's refreshing you know especially considering you know the folks you worked with there and and wall street um i found a quote from you uh which said as a businesswoman i've needed to gain the ability to be confrontational in order to save my company so talk about the boldness and why you embrace boldness why you think it's important confrontation and where you see women and maybe some advice you'd like to give in that regard? So I think, um, I think women can be uh, too kind. It's, it's, it's in our nature to be the fair. I mean, we're called the fairer sex, F-A-I-R-E-R. But when it comes to running a company, 
And especially throughout COVID, which really altered my perception of running the company, because you know that your employees are relying on you. You know, you don't want to take any money from the government. At least I didn't. Right. And um, so you have to make tough decisions and be as confrontational as you need to be uh, in order to make sure that you run the tightest ship possible and you keep you, you contain costs to the greatest extent. And, and, and that also means that you work harder than anybody else in, in your company, because if, if you every time you bring an employee on, every time somebody becomes reliant upon you, so you have to step it up for their sake or you shouldn't have hired them in the first place. Mm -hmm. And in turn, if they're not going to to contribute their fair share, well, then they don't belong either. And I, I that's what a startup is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've tried to that that's what I've tried to communicate, and that's what I've tried to live. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I have some takeaways for me from the book. Uh, fed up again. Um, first, uh, though, I want for the listeners to define the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think most of us know what what that is. The listeners know, but it is the central bank of the United States. It provides the nation with a safe, flexible, and stable monetary and financial system. The Fed supervises the nation's largest banks, conducts monetary policy, and provides financial services to the U.S. government. Right? I mean, we could probably go on for 20 minutes about the Fed, but that's what the Fed does. That's what the Fed is supposed to do. Yes, that's what the Fed is supposed to do. That's what the Fed is supposed to do. Now now the Fed talks about things like climate change, as if they have any tools in their toolbox to address climate change for heaven's sakes. Right. And we know that there's that other mandate of making sure the stock market doesn't fall. Yes. Which is you know, part 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 of why I got fed up. Right. Well, first of all, I lived through this financial crisis. I watched it. It affected me. It affected many people I worked with. I knew in the industry. I owned a commercial mortgage banking company at the time. We placed uh, commercial mortgages. And after that awful last quarter of 2008 and then the year 2009, it was just a very tough time, a very dark time for the business and the economy. Um, so reading the book, uh, it was a little bit of PTSD going back to 2008 and nine. a little disturbing. But um, if anyone wants a better understanding about what happened, and there are books out there from some of the other players, you know, that were in involved in this, um, you know, what about what happened during the crisis. Your book is excellent, and it has a lot of detail, a lot of the people and what happened. Young people should read it who may not have really lived it. So just want to know, when I ask you the question, what went wrong? Uh, if you could summarize oh. this. Um, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, it's in the book. It's it's a long, long, long book. And I shouldn't say it's long. It's just very detailed. But if you had to summarize it in a few sentences, why is the Federal Reserve bad for America? What what happened? Well, you have 786 some odd PhDs who live and die by the models that they've created, many of which are simply continuations of their PhD theses. A lot of people don't really intellectually get beyond what they studied when they got their PhD. It's, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's, it's, it's as if they're stuck in, in, in like this time zone trap. Uh, but you've, you've got a bunch of people who really haven't run companies. They haven't had to make payrolls. They're in their quote unquote, I hate cliches, but they're in their ivory towers. And and they they didn't see the crisis coming. And even after the crisis arrived, because the metrics they were using simply didn't take in the relevant data that was flashing at them, like like you know, there, there's a gardener in Los Angeles who's got five mortgages and his income's maybe 40,000. Is there not something wrong? So empirical evidence was really, it didn't have a place in mm-hmm. Fed policymaking. So they didn't see what was coming, coming. Mm-hmm. And then there it was in their face. And in the aftermath of that, they decided that, you know what, our models didn't pick up this crisis that was coming our way, but we're not going to change our models because if we did, we wouldn't be able to hide behind our overly easy monetary policies. So they did nothing about it. And that's when I decided in my bones that I had to get this book out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's wonderful. I I think 
What I was not shocked about because of the business I'm in is is uh, all of the egos. That did not <laughs> shock me. Uh, the lack of appreciation for the greed and ingenuity of Wall Street, that did not surprise me. Uh, they're underestimated often and they're always, you know, they're always out there doing push-ups in the corner while these, you know, these PhDs sleep, you know, uh, figuring out another way to, you know, to make money. I, sure. I, th I think what surprised me, I'd like you to speak on this, is the, the, the conversations that went on between people, the deceit and the sheer denial out of fear that somebody would look bad, that um, they were wrong on something and the politics of the whole thing. Um, some of these little secret off-record conversations, it seemed to make some guys pretty wealthy and other guys <laughs> left them in the dust. You know, that's what I got. So talk uh, about that. So there, um, there are a lot of things at the Federal Reserve that go on behind closed doors, even though it should theoretically be an open institution, especially at the board level, especially in Washington, D.C. I write extensively uh, in the book about what, what's called the Bernanke Doctrine, which very few people know exists. And the, the fact that there was a meeting held at Jackson Hole that did not involve all members of the Federal Open Market Committee is actually a violation of Fed policy. Um, but 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 a bunch of academics getting together and deciding that interest rates had to be taken to the zero bound before large scale asset purchases. That's their polite way of saying quantitative easing before the Fed could start blowing up its balance sheet. They came together and decided that interest rates had to go to the zero bound interest rates at the zero bound is a big deal. And it's caused a lot of trouble in the real economy. It's made a lot of people on Wall Street really, really wealthy. Yep. Because when you've got interest rates at the zero bound, it doesn't matter how junky the credit status of your company is. The capital markets are open for you. So it's it, it it's also created what we call zombie companies, just the walking dead companies that should no longer be um, among those who are still alive in corporate America, and yet because of this zero interest rate policy that was decided behind closed doors by people who didn't understand the ripple effects that it would create, we have what we have today, which mm -hmm. is a Federal Reserve that remains, since that decision, remains boxed in and, and seemingly unable to what we call normalize interest rates, bring overnight rates up to three or 4%. It's as if we're trapped at the zero bound. And the decision once again was made by people who did not understand the implications of their decisions. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like collusion. Well, the fact that there weren't others, the fact that everybody was not involved, there were not everybody on the federal open market committee, especially my boss at the time, Richard Fisher, Charlie Plosser, even Jay Powell. There were people who just, who, who would have never bought into the, the, the notion that you have to get interest rates to zero. Before you can, before you can begin to do what's called unconventional monetary policy, it should have been an open debate inside of the institution, and there should have been as much input as there was when it came to such controversial subjects as the Fed buying corporate bonds, which was decided against mm -hmm. in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. Would you know the, the Federal Reserve at, at the time? You know, we said we would never get involved in the municipal bond market. So some of the decisions that were that were openly debated and yet completely shrugged off when you have the, the next black swan event of the pandemic, because you've moved your over indebtedness from the household sector and the subprime mortgage blow up, you've moved that onto corporate America's balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So it didn't, the Fed seemingly had no choice. They, they had to come in and save the corporate bond market. Well, no, they didn't. That's a bunch right. of focus. But here we are. I mean, it, we, we've come full circle. Yeah. Yeah, and the cast of characters, I mean, Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, Tim, Timothy Geithner, Greenspan, Yellen, and there were all these casualties and groups that were merged together and some given a life raft. I mean, you had Bear Stearns, Lehman, Failed, um, Fannie, Freddie, AIG, WAMU, and, and Country Ride. I remember all these names and companies at the time. Um but you believe in free markets, let capitalism reign, and the government propped a lot of these companies up, and so they wouldn't fail. There was such 
fear in the market about a full U.S. economic collapse that, you know, the government came to the rescue, right? And yet they let Lehman go. Yeah. And that was a choice. That was a choice because, you know, Hank Paulson didn't, he, he didn't like the guys running Lehman. Yeah. It fold. Was, was it Fold? He, he, didn't, he didn't like Dick Fold. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there, again, none of this is necessarily clean. And I think that that's the word that, that needs to be used because you've got, you know, the, the Sundays that I never slept because you're always, you were always just petrified on Sunday evenings in my kitchen with my four small kids to see where the futures were going to open in Asia. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know what was going to happen next and what was going to blow up next. But you've got this pivotal Sunday afternoon when the CEOs of all almost all of the banks in America are in one room at the New York Fed deciding to let Lehman go. And you've got two other people at the other end of the Fed, Lloyd Blankfein, Timothy Geithner, having a separate chit chat about the fact that if AIG went, it would blow a $17 billion hole in Goldman Sachs balance sheet. So you let Lehman go one day and the next day you have an $85 billion bailout of AIG because one was systemically important and the other wasn't. Oh, wait, we discovered after the fact that Lehman Brothers actually was systemically important because because systemic risk was unleashed with that moment when we saw a money market fund break the buck, when we saw German Landis banks, which we'd never even heard of, had to Google blow up. We knew that Lehman was systemic and yet they chose to let Lehman go and then they chose to save the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in your book, you say they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it could have been Bear Stearns that they let go, but they Lehman was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's like, okay, we're going to save them, let them go, save them, let them go. And it's unfortunate, but it almost sounds like the guy that headed Lehman was not well-liked and pretty a little cocky. <laughs> Uh, he was, he, he, the, he actually, Dick Fold actually had an opportunity to save, uh, to save Lehman. And he got really cocky because he didn't get, you know, the, 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 the dollar price that he wanted for his commercial real estate portfolio. So he said, he said no. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he turned down his white knight and, yeah. and I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong in all of this mm-hmm. necessarily. I mean, the, the, nobody, nobody's hands are clean. Right. Nobody's. Yeah. And we, you know, I just remember, I mean, when all of this came out and I've listened to some of these other, I listened to Timothy Geithner's um, account of this and, you know, these subprime mortgages, you know, these uh, no document mortgages, you know, they were just um, originated yeah. over and over again by these companies and then securitized, resecuritized, resecuritized through CDOs, which are collateralized debt obligations. And you talk in the book about the hot potato of risk, you know, all right, I'm not going to take it. You take it. And then you take it. Right. Yeah. Just make sure it gets the hell out of the warehouse. Right. I mean, yeah. it, it took me so long to understand the plumbing of the financial system and how critical it was. But at the end of the day, it was just get them out of the warehouse, mm-hmm. get the mortgages out of the warehouse, get them in something else that we don't have to hold on to. And by the way, it was known that there was mortgage fraud being committed. And there's here's here's a little flashback and 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 flash forward. Mortgage fraud just began to exceed where it was during the subprime crisis today while we're talking right now. Really? Really. Wow. Interesting. Well, we don't learn lessons, do we? Clearly we don't. You need to get your book back out and do a whole whole new book tour and, <laughs> and promote it again. Well, the book the book is resonating today because we've got Janet Yellen at Treasury, so yeah. um, who, who's clearly over her skis and does not know what to do in her position. Yeah. Um, I see you fighting the good fight and speaking the truth despite the consequences. And in the book, you talk about someone fighting the good but lonely fight. And um, how how did you do that? How would What would you say to a woman who is thinking about blowing the whistle? She sees what's going on. She's afraid to say something. She knows the consequences. Um, when should we, when should we fight the good but lonely fight? You know, I, I think that that obviously has to be a personal decision. It it, um, it, it affected me and, and my family at the time uh, to be penalized right before I was set free from research. They put me in an office on the inside of the building with no windows. I mean, I was 
I was, I was physically in a penalty box. Uh, and, and, but, and by the way, a woman put me there. Hmm. So, uh, be very careful about women who don't want women to succeed because they can be your biggest enemies. And, uh, and there was one there at the fed and then Richard set me free. So even though it was awful, even though I was being abused in the workplace, even though two labor attorneys told me that I was being abused in the workplace and that I I potentially had suit against the Fed, I'm not a I'm not a litigious kind of a person. I'm not somebody who's like, you know, let's just let's just launch a lawsuit because I'm going to go cry. It, I had enough support in my personal life mm-hmm. that I was able to to be carried through Richard Fisher, he had the insights. He saw what was happening to me, even though he was on the top floor of the building and removed, but he Mm -hmm. saw in public meetings uh, what was happening to me. And he knew enough to ask when he did come asking for four more years until he finished his last voting rotation on the Federal Open Market Committee. He knew enough that if he was going to ask me for that, he was going to have to set me free. And get me out of the, the, the chains of bondage of, of the research department. Yeah, we, we talk about that in the podcast, that there are women that help other women. You do that. I do that. Um, we do it. We, we I think we have an obligation to do that. But there are women out there, and you have to know who they are. Like you say, they want to be the queen bee. They uh, don't want you to succeed. They sabotage you. And uh, we have to know who they are. And it's unfortunate, highly unfortunate. It is. And it's something that I that has recurred throughout my career. Yeah. Mine too. I have some stories. And so, um, yeah, the people that you talk about that work for the Fed are these PhDs, some attorneys, but there's this intellectual elitism, you know, kind of a snobbishness about how smart they are. And you said in one of your talks, uh, the Fed is controlled by the silent majority of academics who have been trained in the same school of thought. And I'm picturing you there at the Fed in Dallas, you know, with these PhDs and their graphs and their calculations and models, and they're walking around. And yes, they're brilliant academically, certainly, but they're clueless. And the Wall Street guys are keeping two or three steps ahead of them, right? Talk about that environment. So there's always going to be regulatory arbitrage because Wall Street's always going to know that that, that they can stay one step ahead of the Fed. I mean, it it it, it never failed to amaze me that 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 all of the PhDs would kind of convene in 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 the vestibule in my department right around 11 a.m., head down to the executive dining room, sit around a table have a good long lunch, you know, discuss what their latest paper is and, and what the journal that they're going to be trying to propose to accept it is going to be. And they might rehash their dissertation yet one more time. And then they stroll back up, you know, around one o'clock and I'd be, I, and the whole time that the stock market was open and I'm like, people, markets live and breathe. You yeah. don't take two hour lunches. I mean, had, if, when I was at DLJ, when I was a rookie, if I if I even took a lunch, you could go run to the cafeteria, which was subsidized, and you can run your ass back to your chair and sit back down. But but taking a long lunch yeah. in a million years, that was – and I mean, the whole notion of productivity is just it, – it's there's a certain irony that the Fed studies productivity, but it's one of the most unproductive institutions ever conceived – yeah. Because they don't understand the, you know, the importance of of pr- production. And that was how I was always judged. Yeah. I was always be. judged on Wall Street by what I produced. And yeah. it didn't matter if I was green, an alien, a woman, a man, whatever. They didn't care. As long as uh, as long as I paid paid for myself and then some and made the firm lots of money, mm-hmm. they didn't care. And the Federal Reserve was an opposite institution. Right. And I just have to imagine, and I've worked in different environments in my career, uh, just you know, where you go in and it's quiet and everyone's analyzing things. And then you get the other one where it's like a bunch of salespeople and, uh, you know, uh, more entrepreneurial types. Uh, and, and you have very different environments there with your experience with Wall Street and the experience with the Fed, right? The, the Fed was just, it, it was very sanitary. It felt like being in a hospital. Yeah. Wow. And there was no vibe. There was no energy. 
Yeah. Richard Fisher, um, the president of the Dallas Fed, you liked, he liked you. He was often the only yes vote or no vote among the Fed presidents. So he was, he was an outlier too. He was pretty bold, I thought. You know, you profiled him that way in the book. And what was it like working with him during that time? Well, uh, so after he set me free, so the second half of my stint at the Fed, if you will, uh, was was a pretty extraordinary time of my life. And, you know, he was not a PhD in economics, which is kind of a rarity for Federal Reserve presidents. Um, and, and so he started off on Wall Street at Brown Brothers, just like I started off on Wall Street when I was young. And we spoke the same language. And he, you know, he he didn't want the sell side research that you get from the New York markets desk, from the New York Federal Reserve markets desk, but it still smells and reads like sell side research. So he he made a hugely maverick move and opened his own markets desk at the Dallas Fed. He had his own outpost and I ran it and I had my analysts and we had Bloomberg and we had CNBC on. I went to New York before every FOMC meeting. I talked to the same exact people that Geithner's or Dudley's people were talking to. And I came away with vastly different interpretations and better data that became just a thorn in the side of the people from the New York Fed because because Richard was doing something that was really unorthodox. And of course, the minute I left, they disbanded it at the Dallas Fed. The, the people in research sure as hell didn't like that there was a markets briefing that had been added to their glorious pre-brief book every every FOMC meeting. So it was, I mean, if, if, it, wasn't, if it wasn't so contentious at the time, I would have had to have sat back and just laughed at how seriously <clears throat> the academics took themselves when the financial markets were, you know, in a state of utter collapse mm-hmm. and being disregarded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I want to move on in the spirit of leading she, uh, which, you know, our tagline is where women leaders use their voices, wisdom and experiences to help elevate and inspire other women. So over your career, um, another observation, you've had very different career experiences. I thought it was interesting. You, DLJ, Credit Suisse, you wrote for the Dallas Morning News for a brief period, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. You have your own company. And the thing I've noticed in everywhere you've gone is that you have made your mark. In other words, you have put your flag in the ground everywhere you've gone. And Even though I walk in and I'm 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 technically invisible to the people who are there. Yeah, until you decide that they will notice you, and you do well, that. It's not, it's, it's not a decision. I just I, I just let my work represent myself. Yes, that's I, that's what I that's what I mean to say. So, and I've done that where I go. In other words, when I first came to Northmark, um, it's kind of like okay, we bought a we bought a you know office in Cincinnati, but I thought I'm going to have everybody in this company at least most of them get to know who I am. And I, and so, and that was important to me. It was important to them, I thought, but you put your flag in the ground, no matter where you go. And what would you say to women about that? First steps should never be tentative. So when you take your first step anywhere you are in life, have it be a bold step. When I left Wall Street, I signed a non-compete. I agreed to leave the industry. Credit Suisse wrote me a huge check and I, I gave my book of business to the junk bond desk. Nasty boys from Drexel, um, who, who who we'd hired after the Milken scandal. So when when I left the industry, and I knew that when I retired, all I wanted to do was write for a living. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to go write. So I called the publisher of the Dallas Morning News. I said I'll work for free. He said that works great with my budget. I'm like fantastic. <laughs> the, the first week I was there, I said, oh, the, this this public pension situation is really that that it's toxic. It's 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 not a good situation. And it certainly won't be a good situation for the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation one day if, if you know, if, if, if these airlines start to blow up. And lo and behold, it happened. I was on the front page of the Dallas Morning News the first week that I was an unpaid intern. And within a few months, I had the first daily column that the business section had ever had. And it, I mean, I just, I was unbridled, I was unshackled, and I was bold, and I was bold from day one. And you know that's that's why I got out to I got to go out to Omaha, Nebraska, yeah. my five month old child. Yeah, that's why Richard Fisher called me. I, I made my mark, and it got noticed, and it took me directly to the next step of my life. 
And that's the thing about building a career ladder is sometimes you, you can't see the ladder. You can't see what the next rung up is. In a million years, I, w- I never would have thought that Richard Fisher would have called right. at all. And yet he did. And, and yet because I had predicted the housing crisis, but I didn't feel really good about it. I, I'll never forget the linoleum lady who sent me an apology. She used to send me all this hate mail at the Dallas Morning News. And they were getting their house foreclosed on. And she was, she wrote me a letter to apologize and say, you know, you were right. My husband was listening to you that we shouldn't take that home equity loan out. And now we're losing our home. And I apologize for all the hate mail that I used to send you. Well, I, you know, one of my phrases is ladies don't dance on graves. So, you know, calling the crisis and trying to do something about the crisis were two different things. So when the Fed came calling, you know, I, I, I asked my husband, I was like, I was like, well, can I still make no money? He's like, sure. And then I'm like, well, then I go, I, I good. I can go become a bureaucrat. <laughs> I, I was a, a really poorly paid journalist. And then I got to go be a really poorly paid bureaucrat. Um, yeah. And, and, and they systematically underpaid me the entire time I was at the Federal Reserve. And I knew it and they knew it. And I kept saying, I'm only here to serve my country. If you people think I'm here for some public pension, you got another thing coming. This is, I used to make what I paid my two sales assistants on Wall Street. That was my salary. Yeah. So I was truly there to serve my country. But again, I I didn't know that I was going to go work at the Fed. I didn't see the next ladder up on the career ladder. And that's why you have to do your best wherever you are and make your mark and make it immediately because inevitably it will open the next door. Yeah, I love the story. I mean, you you kind of said no to Wall Street, non-compete. You, I think you at that point went back to get your degree in journalism, right? And you wanted to write. Uh, I, I went to night school and I was on Wall Street because I had a bad habit okay. of too much Jimmy Choo and too much Vuv Clicquot. So <laughs> I, I put myself, I, I, I'm, yeah, I got in trouble with myself. So I sent myself back to school. So the stock market would close at four o'clock and I would race over to the one and the three line and go up to Columbia. So I put myself through, I, I graduated December, 2001 before I ever left Wall Street. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And then, so, but your message is a good one that, you know, and no ladies, matter- you know, if you're listening, if you're listening, there is no such thing as being too old to go back to school. If yeah. you feel like you miss something and you feel like you can do, do the night school and, and, and you can commit yourself, do it. Yeah, my, my mother didn't get her undergraduate degree until she was 36 years old. But damn it, she got it. Yeah. And it was a huge point of pride and a huge inspiration to me to see and not hear. So mm-hmm. if you want to go back and get, get another degree, go get it. Yeah, I love it. But the point the point on the mark is, you know, every place you went from based on my research of you and the book is you went there. I think you were consistently underestimated and you just kind of like, Okay, here's what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And then you got your next opportunity. Um, you received an actual email from Warren Buffett. You thought it was maybe spam. Uh, that's what you were talking about going to Omaha with your five month old son, right? What tell that story? Yeah, no, I mean, please. I mean, Warren Buffett's not going to send me an email. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Warren Buffett's assistant. Yeah. But, um, but, but in the email address was his middle initial of E. And I'm like, well, that's that's intriguing. I wonder what the E stands for. Maybe that's not spam. So I I double clicked open, and he was like, "Gee, you're writing some really amazing things. You're talking about the long term danger that is posed by China buying so many U.S. Treasuries and basically mortgaging the farm. And I, I really do appreciate what you've been writing. And I'm like, well, I didn't know I was writing in Omaha, but oh well." It's the World Wide Web. Uh, and he said, well, come on out to Omaha for the annual meeting. And I'm like, well, well I can't. I've, I've got a five-month-old. I'm still nursing this kid. It's the only thing I've ever done for the environment. It's the only tree I've ever hugged. Uh, he's like, no, no, I'll get him a press pass. So off we went. My five-month-old had the cutest little press pass ever. I'll keep it for the rest of my life. And um, you know, I, I didn't get to spend very much time with Warren Buffett himself, but I did get to spend a good bit of time with Charlie Munger. And I think in my last life or in my future life, if I was to come back as a man, I would come back as Charlie Munger because he, there's no governor in his mouth. Yeah. And he, he's what, like, who is, who is Charlie Munger for the listeners? Oh, sorry. Charlie Munger is basically the co-founder of, of Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway. He's, he's older than, than Warren Buffett and he gets to say whatever he wants. Warren <laughs> Buffett's a little bit more measured hmm. in his public statements. Charlie Munger, whatever it's on his mind, it comes right out of his mouth. He sent me a book, a signed book after that, and uh, and he made a huge impact on my way of thinking 
because he wasn't being penalized for speaking the truth. And, you know, that, that's how I've lived the rest of my career is by speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 refreshing and it's wonderful. And I know you have backlash from that, but you you do it anyway. And that's that's the boldness I see in you. Um, I want to talk about uh, just, you know, your background, where you grew up, uh, your husband. You've got four children, three boys and a girl, right? Three boys and a girl. Yep. Yeah. Um, where did you grow up? And, you know, just a little bit about your your family. So uh, interesting background. I'll, I'll make this as brief as I can. My okay. father, my father in East Haven, Connecticut, found out that his draft card was coming up and ran out and joined the uh, the Air Force during Vietnam. And that landed him in San Antonio, Texas, where my mother had just started off as a civil servant. She was driving in from the middle of nowhere, Texas, to Lackland Air Force Base to become a civil servant. She was with the government for 37 years, moved up the rungs through the disability and social security division uh, throughout her career. And um, after my father's tour was done, they never did deploy him to Vietnam. They found out that he was a gifted instructor. So they kept him on base as an instructor. So he was there all four years. Uh, I was two and a half months old when my father's tour ended and we were able to return to Stores, Connecticut, and my father finished up at UConn. Um, Funny little story, Danielle Renee DiMartino is my maiden name. My mother was carrying me like a basketball pregnancy, so they just assumed that it was a boy because back then they didn't know. So uh, when, when they said it's definitely not a boy, then they just abbreviated the name. So they they extended the name, so Danielle Renee. So I'm actually named after... Uh, a, a French air, air pilot my father got to know well who was hmm. sent to Lackland. Mm-hmm. So I'm named after a man, which is probably, probably that's probably apropos. Uh, in any event, when I was four and a half years old, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I, I'd had scarlet fever so many times. The, the cold of Connecticut did not agree with me. And my mother basically said to my father, I'm, I'm headed back to, to San Antonio. This she's, she's lost half the earring, half the hearing in one of her ears this cold business just doesn't doesn't work for my daughter. So um, the whole family ended up coming back to Texas. And so I, I spent my summers growing up in Connecticut. I spent my uh, so Memorial Day to Labor Day. So I didn't have to deal with the brutal Texas heat. And that's how I kept the Connecticut Italian part of me because I call myself a Connecticut, Texas hybrid. And I, and I am. I still have family in Connecticut and I still enjoy going there. And mm-hmm. um, uh my my father got into a lot of debt. He was kind of a crooked investor. Uh, it left a huge impact on my life. It's why I don't take out debt, even though I can. My mother and I ended up alone. I uh, after the the divorce, I was working full time since I was 16 years old, which is hard to do when you're a high school student. But when you open and close the mall store every Saturday and Sunday and you work every day after school, you manage to get your 40 hours in, even though you're a high school student. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I had no choice uh, but to go to the University of Texas at San Antonio. And that wasn't even affordable at the time. I had to go to San Antonio College where I started off at community college. So don't ever be ashamed of starting at community college. It can always be a passport to mm-hmm. uh, a state university. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, I, I excelled where I landed. So the yeah. College of Business Scholarship, uh, this College of Business Scholar allowed me to gain entry to the University of Texas uh, at Austin for my MBA. I had no money. I had very little food. So I would go to all the career things at the career center. It didn't matter if it was Procter & Gamble or Solomon Brothers. One day, Solomon Brothers came calling and I'm like, free hors d'oeuvres, free wine. So I would always go to these presentations down at the career center. And, you know, there's this guy standing up in front of the room in an Hermes tie, very much talking only to the connected men in the audience so that they could come back to the Houston and Dallas offices and do municipal bonds. So he was really only there to talk to them. But yet he said, anybody who wants an informational interview, you're more than welcome to come. And I raised my hand and I'm like, I'll be right there. This finance stuff sounds like fun. So two weeks later, I'm on an airplane to uh, to Solomon Brothers it was my birthday, and um, they 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 congenially had me there, thinking get her out of this building, this back ass country, you know what? <laughs> and this was this was at the time of of, of liars poker, and this was a two story tall trading floor. 
They had me looking out from the top floor and I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven women and hundreds of men. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'm like, I still don't know what finance is, but if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. (laughs) And so that was when I decided, you know, a month into my MBA that I was going to major in finance and that I was going to work on Wall Street in New York. Yeah, you did. Cool story. Um, I love this quote you say about your mother in the book and the acknowledgments. You say, I am me because of you. I would not be anything were it not for you. You gave so very much and lost so much more to ensure that what you could not have, I would have in every way. If this book was not dedicated to those who have inspired me to in turn inspire, it would be dedicated to you. I'm just getting chills reading that. I keep it right next to me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Where's, where's, I'm sorry. I'm kind of twitter. It's up. beautiful. It's it's just beautiful. She um, she remains my best friend to this day. She's my biggest fan. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, you know, I, I was told I could never have children. And she's like, well, try me on this one. I've got a really strong prayer circle. I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm, four kids later, I'm like, mom, that's some prayer circle. So yeah. Uh, She's, uh, she's, she's my best friend. She's my biggest influence. Um, she's, she's the reason that even though I don't have to work, you may notice I've got a little bit of carbon on, um, but I I don't necessarily have to work, but because of my mother's influence on me, when I was in the ER and they were yanking my daughter out of me because she was bright blue and just about dead, uh, when, when they said it's a girl and I found that out, I, I said to myself, well, now you can never quit. Because yeah. when it comes to being a mother of a daughter, it's show, don't tell. You can tell a man who's going to succeed in a man's world, and he'll believe you because it's a man's world. And he's going to step into it and succeed as long as you pave the way. But you have to show a daughter that you can succeed. And my mother showed me the importance of, of, of the work ethic and the importance of education and the sacrifices she made for me. Um, I will forever be grateful for, and I keep trying to pay it back to her in every way I can every day of my life. Yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. And just coincidentally, I didn't know this about you, about where she worked. My mother worked for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and was a civil servant and spent, I think, 40 years there. Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah. Small, 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 small world. world. Yes. Yeah. Mom would always tell me, you know, she, she, it always got her so irritated that, that and I'm, I'm just as irritated today with Americans who don't want to work. So her, her being witness to people who were clearly trying to game the, the disability system was, was also a, an influence on my life because uh, there, there's no integrity in that. Yeah. And it used to anger her and it angers me to this day. You bought your, your mother something uh, when you got your first big paycheck. Talk about that. So I got my first big paycheck. Well, I'm, I have to say uh, it, it was my second big paycheck. My first big paycheck, I paid off my student loans in full. And, um, and, and, and then I took a picture of, of the receipt and I'm like, okay, I don't have any debt. Thank God. Uh, my, my second big paycheck was my mom's 50th birthday. So I put her on an airplane. She's never seen Manhattan. She's never seen New York. She's barely ever been on an airplane as it is. And I take her to Vidal Sassoon and I, you know, I didn't even, it sounded good. I knew that they had commercials on TV when I was growing up. So I took her to the, to the flagship Vidal Sassoon salon in New York and got her hair done. And we had a girl's weekend. It was the time of her life. And it was the time of, of my life. And, um, and I'll never regret that. One day she called years later after I'd moved to Fifth Avenue. And I thought that I was going to stay in Manhattan forever. And I was making more money than I'd ever even imagined could be made. But years later, she called me and she said, you know, I'm starting to think about retiring. And I said, it's about it's about time, mom. I keep asking you to. And she said, well, I found this little piece of property. You know, one of my brothers is five miles east. One of my brothers is five miles west. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I said, fine, you can have it. And she's like, don't you want to know what it costs? And I'm like, no, just get it. You can have it. That's that's mm-hmm. your gift. And um, and she uh, eventually we built her a house there. And um, she's got a little life alert. She's almost 75, yeah. but she's got a little life alert and she gardens every day and she lives out in the country in her home and she's as happy as she can be. And um, the stupidest question I ever asked my mother, though, I'll just throw this in there, was the, the, the real estate agent is asking me if I want mineral rights, mom. And she said, good God, girl, you've been in the city for too long. Of course you want mineral rights. <laughs> 
So, so now I get my shoe budget every month because they frack underneath the property afterwards. So I get this, I get a couple hundred dollars in the mail every, every month and that's my shoe budget. So it's pretty awesome. That oh, I get that's the cool. Yeah. I'm making money on your mom's property. I love it. <laughs> what, what would you say as we, uh, as we're closing on the end here, what would you say to women about perseverance? You've, you've had this varied career. You've just fought the battle and, and have just succeeded over and over. And now with your company, um, what would you say to women about perseverance? You know, when things look bleak, they, when, when bad things are happening and we've all had them, you know, we've, we've lived long enough to have things happen. What would you say? Well, so you've interviewed Ivy Zellman on this before. Yes. Yeah, loved her. Um, she's she's become quite a close friend, and I recently celebrated, uh, belatedly celebrated a birthday in Tuscany with with fourteen of my closest friends. And my message is that you never forget your friends, because there's always going to be dark times in your life. But your friends, if they're truly your friends, will be there to hold you up and get you through whatever that dark chapter is and get you on to the next step. So my mother's my rock. Yeah. My husband's my other rock. Mm -hmm. My children are the only thing I'll leave behind, period, end. But my friends are my network and they're my safety net. Mm -hmm. And they're going to capture me if I fall. Yeah. Great advice. And I do the same thing with my friends. I couldn't, uh, couldn't do this without them. And just when things seem pretty bleak, you know, you can talk to a friend and she can cheer you up, give you hope and restore confidence, right? That's what they do. (laughs) Talk about, um, as we close out here, why did you decide to to form your company? What, um, what was motivating you there? So, and I was I was really ready to form my company. The minute I the minute I could leave the Fed, I did leave the Fed. I mean, sensitivity training for somebody like me is just it's just not a good idea. <laughs> um, I, I I used to call my sales assistants girls, and I would get in trouble for that. And I'm like, well, they're clearly not boys. But anyways, I I I, I knew I didn't want to go back to compliance. I knew I didn't want to become a sell side talking head and have to, you know, sell things that were not appropriate for investors just because the the the, the investment bank was underwriting it. I didn't want to go back to that world even though I could have with my credentials because the Federal Reserve opens a lot of doors if you want to go that route in in your for, for the next step in your career. But I loved what I did for Richard Fisher. I loved writing the market's briefings. Yeah. I loved taking in every single aspect. I have nine TVs in my house. They're almost always, always, always on Bloomberg TV muted. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I just want to take the information in. Yeah. And markets are a living, breathing soul. And markets breathe life into me. And writing those markets briefings for Richard, I said to myself, if you enjoyed it so much, Danielle, just go do it. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you love doing. But you're no longer going to be writing his speeches. You can actually speak out loud now. So I, I said to myself, if you're going to do this, do this. I left the Fed on June the 12th, 2015. I published my first weekly on June the 15th, 2015. I premiered on CNBC on June the 17th, 2015. Within a week of leaving the Fed, I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing because I had a game plan when I exited that I was able to execute right away. And I did. And one of the greatest influences on my career, I had somebody help me create a website in 72 hours. She came so highly recommended that I called her and she inadvertently picked up the phone, even though she just had a double mastectomy and was in a hospital and was on painkillers. I'm not sure why Virginia, my rock inside my company picked up that phone, but she did. So we just worked together for the next 72 hours, depending on what her pain level was. We created this company. We created this website. We published. And I have missed Christmas, New Year's, July the 4th. Those are the three national holidays that have fallen on Wednesdays. And this last Wednesday that I was recently in Italy, I finally gave myself one week off of writing the weekly. But other than that, we published every day, even when I was in Italy. We are consistent. We are disciplined. Mm. And I love what I do. And, mm. and growing Quill Intelligence is it's what keeps me going right now. Fantastic. I just uh, 
what an inspiration. And that's the way I felt when I started my company. Just uh, it's all yours. And you can, and I write too. I write for my business and publications ask me to do, I think what you do, which is synthesize all these complex things and then say, here's what you need to know, you know, sort of in the common man's way. And uh, so, yeah, I, I relate to that. I want to ask you one more. I would be remiss if I didn't ask some thoughts about the economy right now. What sh- what should we be worried about? It seems like we keep hearing about inflation, uh, single family rental stuff. Greenspan's photos actually in the Wall Street today. You probably saw it and him uh, haunting haunting the markets about some of the things that are going on. Well, we're beyond irrationally exuberant. Um, you know, people need to understand that that in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, that the Federal Reserve was able to go at it alone, and because they resolved an over indebtedness problem by creating even more debt. Right, we've gone from a ten trillion dollar corporate debt market to a eleven and a half trillion corporate debt market post COVID. So we we really kicked it into high gear in terms of making bad balance sheets worse. That's how they resolved it. But again, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the Fed was able to go at it alone. This time, they needed the fiscal authorities to join hands with them and inject 42.3% of U.S. GDP into the veins of Americans directly deposited into the veins of U.S. consumers in an 18-month span and trigger the mother of all inflationary inflation's rising at a faster pace. It's not higher than it was when Carter was in office, but inflation today is rising at a faster pace than it was during the Carter administration. That's saying something. And the Federal Reserve is so behind the curve. The Federal Reserve had no business being in mortgage-backed securities. The Federal Reserve had no business underwriting the Blackstones of the world so that they could so that they could leverage off of the zero interest rate policy. And, and now investors are buying one in four U.S. homes and invitation homes, just to name one, which is obviously the Blackstone subsidiary. Um, but uh, Sorry, it's publicly traded. But, but invitation homes is bragging on its conference calls that new leases, it's getting 19% appreciation over the prior lease. Is that what we want to do to the American people? Hmm. So we've had too much in the way of fiscal stimulus. We've had way too much in the way of monetary stimulus. There will be a price to be paid. Everybody is in denial because the stock market's as high as it is, but there is no such thing as free lunch. There wasn't such thing as anything such as a free lunch in 2007 and 2008. And there won't be in the aftermath of whatever it is, this grand experiment that we've done because winter is coming and the midterms are coming. And yes. they will be crucial to not getting more money out to U.S. people. And that's why your average upper income American is planning to spend 15 percent more this holiday season. Thank you very much, hmm. Fed, because Fed policy only trickles up. And the average lower income American family is planning to spend 22 percent less this holiday season hmm. because inflation is eating them alive. And that's where we are today in this economy. And I hope to God something gives and we don't have something worse result from something that makes what happened prior to the French Revolution look like a walk in the park because the Federal Reserve has told the people, let them eat cake. Hmm. Wow. Well, Danielle, this has been delightful. Thank you for being a guest on Leading She. I'm delighted that Ivy Zellman introduced us and uh, that you agreed to do this. Thank you. Thank you for reading my quote about my mother. I'm going to go send it to her again and remind her how much I love her. So that was beautiful. That was a really special moment. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.